Chapter 41. The Foundation is Built for the Future. Personalized programming growth was astonishing. With it came all the problems associated with a rapidly growing technology company. Managing 10 to 20 people is one thing, but managing 55 is quite another. At some point, you have to start hiring managers just to manage the people. I resisted creating middle management as much as possible. I tried to let the teams manage themselves with my constant guidance. Because we'd grown from the ground up and very few of my people ever left, we had tremendous wealth of technical and industrial knowledge in our programming group. With 25% of all independent physicians across the United States using the medical manager, the practice management industry flowed through Alachua, Florida. We didn't have to decide what direction to go in. We were surfers, riding the powerful wave of industry demand. There was so much work to do that it was almost impossible to keep up. By late 1994, I began to realize that I couldn't possibly run all the programming groups and the financial management aspects of a multi-million dollar business, as well as prepare for the next wave of growth. I needed some serious help. So what I did, did, so I did what I always did, worked even harder and waited for the flow of life to do its thing. It was in this backdrop that I first met Tim Staley. Tim was a professional software developer and senior IT consultant who had decided to move his family out to the country. He had chosen the tiny town of High Springs, just a few miles north of Alashua, as his new home. If you're a professional IT person and you move out to my neck of the woods, you're certainly going to hear about personalized programming. Tim applied for a job just like anyone else would, but... Tim was not like anyone else. Tim was another miracle. Just like everything else that showed up exactly when it was supposed to, life had dropped this highly skilled and experienced IT developer executive into my lap. He would not only end up being the solution to the software development problems we were having, he would also end up being the solution to a much larger problem that hadn't even surfaced yet. I remember the first time I met Tim. He was in a rush to find employment in the area so he could move his family up before school started for his children. After seeing his resume, I allowed HR to set up a Saturday evening, so a Saturday evening meeting, so Tim did not have to miss work. He was young, very clean and proper looking, and his right hand he was carrying a Bible. That's an unusual thing to bring to a job interview, but Tim was clearly a very religious Christian, and he wanted me to know it. I had no problem with that, but I was not sure how, that he would not have a problem with the ponytailed, sandal-wearing yogi for a boss. We went up to my office, and we began to get to know each other. Tim was, in fact, a rocket scientist. He had worked for years at Harris Corporation, writing code for missile guidance systems. I immediately realized I could check off the smart enough box. He had been a developer, team leader, and project manager. Tim excelled so thoroughly at this overall project development and people skills that he was now a senior consultant for Texas Instruments running large projects for clients. Interestingly, at that time, he was consulting on a major IT project for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Florida. We began to discuss development philosophy, and we were as different as the way we dressed. To me, software development was a creative art. To him, it was an engineering project. The truth is, I knew it had to be both in order to be successful in the long run. Tim clearly brought to the table the 
experiential discipline that comes from being a senior software engineer in a Fortune 500 technology company. We were desperately in need of that knowledge and experience. Tim and I spent hours together and really got to like each other. He was a perfect fit for what personalized programming needed, both professionally and personally. But I still had one issue that needed to be resolved. If Tim was going to seriously consider taking the job, I needed to be sure that he was going to be comfortable with who I was. At some point, he was certainly going to hear about the temple across the street. I decided the only fair thing to do was to take him over there and show him around. I was amazed by how open Tim was to the temple. He was fascinated by the artifacts of the various religions and asked a lot of deep questions about meditation and yoga. It turned out that Tim was much more than a very religious person. He was deeply spiritual and was truly a lover of God. Rather than being offended by how I had come up, he was inspired by it. A very deep spiritual bond formed that day as we shared our spiritual experiences and beliefs with each other. This bond of spiritual friendship grew stronger and stronger over the next 10 years that we worked together. Apparently, life had outdone itself once again. I hired Tim, and we decided to quietly bring him in as a developer instead of a top management. He wanted to work directly with my people to get to know the development environment firsthand. The plan was that after some months, he would start to reorganize and take charge of the development teams I would remain in charge of the product direction. He would be in charge of engineering. I couldn't wait to find out how much of the load Tim would be capable of carrying. The medical manager produ product was more than 15 years old by the time Tim began working with it. And it had been designed for small doctor practices and was now being used to run large clients and sprawling managed care organizations. It was not unusual for some of our larger dealers to install systems that supported hundreds of users. If this kept up, we would eventually outgrow the technical capabilities of the software. In addition, our clients were beginning to ask us to modernize the overall product. The writing was on the wall. Unless we did something, our days were numbered. If we wanted a solid foundation for the future, we were going to have to completely rewrite the product. This was not a decision for the faint of heart. It was going to take tremendous investment, putting the risk of years of development resources and millions of dollars. As I pondered over the enormity of the project that lie before us, it finally hit me. This was the real reason Tim had been sent to us. He had been sent to re-engineer the medical manager into a totally new product with the latest development technology. We couldn't afford to stop the rapid pace of development of existing systems, so I gave Tim the go-ahead to hire the addis entire additional development team to build the new product. Intergy would be the new product's name, and... It would be a good thing we were building buildings because we were certainly going to need them. I trusted Tim implicitly and gave him whatever he asked for. It took us close to five years to release the new product, but when it was all said and done, we ended up with a product that would keep us in the marketplace for many years to come. And as I look back at it now, it's so obvious that we could never have succeeded as we did without Tim showing up exactly when he did. How in the world does this keep happening again and again? Chapter 42. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. There was so much work to do at personalized programming that I pretty much worked all my waking hours except for my mornings and evenings in the temple. The temple community was so stable that it hardly took any of my management time. 
Radha was able to manage the temple and its finances, even though her position as the chief financial controller at the personalized programming kept her working day and night. In the midst of all this transformation, the temple was about to experience a change of its own. At the end of 1994, Amrit had a major falling out with its followers. As is the case with so many people, we put up a pet we put up on a pedestal some inappropriate behavior from his past came to light and the situation proved extremely difficult for everyone when i heard that amrit had actually left the community i invited him and his wife to come spend some quiet time living with us at the temple to be there when a person is soaring high is an easy relationship to be there during hard times requires deep friendship all of us had received a great deal from Amrit over the years. We were humbled at the opportunity to give something back. Radha had been living in the Jenkins house for several years by then. Since it was the nicest house on our property, she immediately offered to move out. In December 1994, Amrit and his wife moved into that house and ended up living there for the better part of three years. It was an amazing experience to be that close to such an evolved person, going through such a life-changing experience. While he was there, Amrit simply followed the situation to put him through whatever changes he needed to go through. Situations like this are fire, and Amrit just wanted to use that fire for a spiritual purification. He wasn't sad, he wasn't hurt, he wasn't scared, he was just completely surrendered to what was happening and going through the experience. I constantly saw in Amorit what I always saw inside of me. When push comes to shove, I don't care what it takes, just free me from myself. The only meaningful prayer is that this white-hot fire be so destructive to the personal self that it severs the cord that binds. Standing soul to soul, Amorit and I had that in common, liberation at any cost. I didn't isolate myself from what Amrit was going through. I wanted to share the experience of exploring what it would be like inside of everything if everything were taken away outside. I recalled King Solomon's wisdom. For everything there is a reason, a time for every purpose under heaven. I had been honored to know Amrit as a world-renowned teacher. I was now all the more honored to be close to him as he passed through a period of great darkness, or better put, a period of great darkness pass through him. He never complained and he never got depressed or despondent. He just spent each day surrendering at a deeper and deeper level. Reality was what it was. Might as well use it to let go of the personal self. As with all things, in time the energy began to shift. The noise of the past subsided and opportunities for the future began to open up. One day, Amrit asked me to take a drive with him to see a place that he'd found in Ocala National Forest. It was a very small town, less than an hour and a half of the temple. I couldn't believe the place when I saw it. It was absolutely beautiful, giant house sitting on the shore of a gorgeous lake, and there were also five or six cabins on the property. It was a perfect home for Amaret and his family. Every place I walked, I felt Amaret. I had known him for years, and I knew his taste. You could not have a custom-built home specifically for him that was more perfect than this place. I had to hold back tears as I realized it was over. The period of darkness had passed. I encouraged him to buy the property if he could afford it. He then told me the price. I couldn't believe my ears. It was the deal of the century. I learned a lot about surrender by being with Amrit during that whole ordeal. What I saw was that no matter what we are, no matter who we are, 
Life is going to put us through the changes that we need to go through. The question is, are we willing to use this force for our transformation? I saw that even very intense situations don't have to leave psychological scars, even if we are willing to process our changes at a deeper level. My surrender experiment had already taught me to deeply honor the transformative power of life. Sharing that time with Amaret would prove to be all the more important since life as I knew it was once again about to go through a major unexpected change. Embracing Explosive Expansion Chapter 43 The Medical Manager Sprouts Wings If you had asked me in 1995 what I thought the future of personalized programming would look like, I would have told you that we had grown about as big as we could and the challenge was going to be staying at the top of our industry. If you asked me about my surrender experiment, I would have told you that the relentless practice of letting go of myself in order to fully embrace what was unfolding around me was having a profound effect on my spiritual growth. By the end of 1995, personalized programming had grown to 75 employees and had enough work to keep us busy for a very long time. I loved what we were doing, and we were obviously very good at it. Our revenues had reached $10 million a year, and since most of us was royalty payments, we were profiting 5 or $6 million a year. The medical manager itself was more than 15 years old by then, and it was touching the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. In my limited view of things, I saw us going like this for the foreseeable future. The first clue that dramatic change was once again on the horizon came when I learned that the Systems Plus and many of the dealers were discussing the possibility of merging together into one company. Apparently, they felt that this would help them compete better at a national level. Soon afterwards, I received a visit from one of our larger dealers, John Kang, who was the headquartered in Tampa. He informed me that he had been working on a proposal to consolidate the medical manager dealers into a combined company. He laid out his plan of initially purchasing the personalized programming, Systems Plus, and three or four of the larger dealerships. He explained that it would take a large initial investment, but he'd already had lined it up. John's presentation was very professional, but I didn't see why personalized programming had to be involved. I told him I would be willing to legally commit to providing the medical manager software to the new company. He then dropped the bombshell. Any investors in the company would insist that the foundational software be owned by the company itself. I was very uncomfortable with the thought of selling personalized programming, but I was even more uncomfortable thinking that I would be the reason that all these hundreds of dealers and Systems Plus were unable to get their hard-earned value from their businesses. I told John I was not interested in selling the business at any price. But if my reluctance was truly in the way of everyone else's dreams, I would have to give his proposal some consideration. I told him I could come back to see he could come back to see me if his if he succeeded in getting others to buy into his plan. What I was really hoping, however, was that the whole thing would just fall through by itself. John returned a few weeks later, having obtained buy-in from some of our largest dealers as well as Systems Plus. The handwriting was on the wall. This was becoming like all the previous times I had put aside my strong personal preferences and surrendered to what was manifesting before me. 
I didn't like it one bit. I was fully committed to seeing where the path of the surrender of life was going to lead me. John Kang had made me a persuasive offer for personalized programming that included both cash and stock in the new company. He then set out on a difficult journey of merging five businesses into one and raising the funds needed to pull the merger off. The bankers decided that it would be the best to raise the necessary $150 million by selling shares of the new company publicly. The date for initial public offering was set for early 1997, but a lot of work still needed to be done. What a world to be thrown into. Personalized programming had grown gradually from its humble roots of one employee, me. It was now a very well-organized, highly successful private company. This level of organization was not going to exist when a bunch of independently run businesses first get thrown into a pot together. There were going to be the expected power struggles, dealer acquisition issues, and constant legal and financial issues to be ironed out. Nonetheless, I didn't allow myself to get caught up in all those negative thoughts. I just remained open and completely intrigued by what was unfolding. It was decided that the new company would be called Medical Manager Corporation, and I must admit, I liked that. I flashed back to 1981 when I was finishing the software and first came up with the name The Medical Manager. Fifteen years later, Medical Manager was now going to become a public company. Standing at the threshold of this major event, I was totally in awe seeing where my experiment with the surrender had managed to lead me. Chapter 44, Medical Manager Corporation, MMGR. When the smoke cleared, I was to be the chief executive officer, CEO, John Kang, the president, and Rick Carl, the general counsel. Corporate headquarters would be established in Tampa at John Kang's facilities, and Rick Carl and I would work out of the Alashua offices. The company would trade on the NASDAQ exchange under the symbol MMGR. As we headed towards the end of 1996, the cadre of lawyers and bankers was finishing up all the paperwork to merge the companies together and simultaneously do the IPO. I remember that this was an interesting time for me in my relationship with my dad. My father had been a stockbroker most of his life, and he had been working at Merrill Lynch for more than 30 years. His only son had dropped out of graduate school in business to live in the woods and meditate. I never left the woods, yet all of a sudden I was in my dad's world. He kept telling me that he just couldn't believe that Morgan Stanley, one of the premier brokerage houses in the world, was interested in my company. He was also surprised to find out that Merrill Lynch's healthcare analyst was closely monitoring our upcoming transaction. My dad was very interested that my company was going public, and we talked to each other more during this time than we had for previous 20 years put together. It makes sense. We now had something in common to talk about. I was humbled by this opportunity to get closer to my father. I saw it just as another miraculous thing that had happened as I surrendered to the flow of life. It wasn't too much later when my dad died. But you can be sure he enjoyed being able to give his son a lifetime of learned advice about becoming a public company, the healthcare sector, and Wall Street in general. Despite the amazing sequence of events that led up to this point, nothing could have prepared me for what happened next. A week or so before the IPO, I received a list of action items from my New York attorney. One by one, I worked through the list, signing required documents and locating required paperwork. The final item was due the next day, so I rushed down to my bank to access the safety deposit box. 
I rarely had a reason to touch this box. I rented it back in 1971 to store my only possession, the deed for my original 10 acres. Once I was left alone with the storage box, I began looking for the document my attorney had requested. There wasn't much in the box, but what was there had the effect of time of a time machine. I came across the original deed on my property. How much had happened since then? No one in their right mind could have imagined the flow of events that have folded since I decided to drop out and live in the woods. My trip back in time was interrupted when I came upon the document I was looking for. I pulled out the trifolded piece of paper and opened it up. It was a personalized programming stock certificate sent to me when I incorporated the company 15 years earlier. When I had originally dropped the certificate in my deposit box, it was pretty much worthless to anyone but me. Then it hit me like a ton of bricks. The most savvy investors in the world were valuing this piece of paper at over $100 million. My mouth went dry and tears welled up in my eyes. I had given everything up and it kept coming back tenfold. When I had decided to let go and devote my life to serving what was unfolding in front of me, I was earning less than $5,000 a year. When Built with Love came together, it grew from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands in revenue. When personalized programming came together, it quickly grew to millions and then more than $10 million in sales and royalties. Now I was dealing with a $100 million asset. It wasn't the money that moved me. It was the invisible hand of life that blew me away. I stood there in the bank and offered that piece of paper back to the universe from whence it had come. I vowed to serve the company I had watched life build brick by brick to use the money entrusted to me in a way that would help others. I took a deep breath, closed the deposit box, and prepared to ship the stock certificate up to New York. Chapter 45 Becoming CEO Medical Manager Corporation was born out of a successful IPO on February 2, 1997. Out here in the woods of Alashua, not only did I maintain my position as president of our large R&D facility, but I also became CEO and chairman of the board of directors of the new company. I was completely naive to how much work I would be taking on as CEO. I quickly realized that it was going to be a requirement for all the one-pointed focus that I had developed through my years of meditation. I had surrendered, and this was the task that life had given to me. That made it part of my spiritual journey, and I was fully prepared to devote myself to the absolute best of my ability. The first thing I did was take the steps necessary to assure that I would know what was going on in the company. I was in Alashua, a group of independent-minded executives accustomed to running their own businesses, were scattered around the country. If I was going to take responsibility for the company, a thorough flow of information needed to pass across my desk. This was going to require regular group conference calls and an enormous amount of reporting to keep up with what everyone was doing. When I announced that each executive had to turn in a weekly report on the major activities under their domain, there was definitely some grumbling, but together we had an enormous, enormous amount of experience, and I wanted the group-minded making decisions, not any one person's mind. It wasn't long, however, before I realized that I couldn't possibly keep up with all the weekly status reports, plus being properly prepared for the executive conference calls. I needed some serious help, and as you may have guessed by now, that's exactly what I got. We won't call it a miracle, but this time life's magic showed up in the form of a young lady named Sabrina. 
Paul Dobbins had met her years earlier at one of our national dealer seminars, and apparently it was love at first sight. Not too long after that, Paul informed us that Sabrina was moving here and they were getting married. I didn't know Sabrina, and I was concerned that Paul expected her to move into yoga-based spiritual community when she wasn't even into yoga or meditation. He assured me that she would fit in just fine, and he also informed me that I'd be very pleased to have her work at the company. Surrender, 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 like I had a choice. As it turns out, Sabrina's family business was a small medical manager dealership in California. She had been selling, installing, and supporting practice management software since she was 13 years old. Though she was only 22 when she began working at personalized programming and had never been to college, I soon found out that senior-level business analysis was completely natural to her. Despite the fact that she had no prior experience at this level, Sabrina was the person I turned to for executive help when I became CEO. With Sabrina at my side, one of the main responsibilities as CEO became growing the company. Fortunately, this was no ordinary company. The prospects for growth in the newly created Medical Manager Corporation were phenomenal. To start with, our growth would come naturally as we acquired our dealers. We had close to 200 dealers, many of which would be very good at acquisitions for us. As long as we had a steady stream of new dealers merging into the company, we had a natural source of growth. Much more interesting to me, however, was the tremendous growth that could come from our ability to electronically connect our enormous number of doctors to the rest of the healthcare and industry, including insurance companies, laboratories, and pharmacies. Once we rolled support of our practices under one roof, we could provide a level of automation for the healthcare system that would not only cut costs, but also result in improved efficiency in patient care. I sat down with Sabrina and told her that getting our 100,000-plus doctors fully up on electronic claims and other healthcare transactions was going to be our first corporate business initiative. I then informed her that she was going to be the person in charge. This was the birth of what we called the Medical Manager Network Services. The success of this venture at so many levels was practically incomprehensible. It started out as an inspired vision and grew into a hundred million a year line of business. In a very short period of time, we led the industry in electronic transactions. Over the next two years, the company grew by leaps and bounds. We kept acquiring more and more of our dealers, and our nationwide presence meant we could provide our services to larger and larger clients. Meanwhile, I never worked so hard in my life, but it didn't burn me out. In fact, it had the opposite effect. The more I let go of Mickey and just committed myself to the task that life had given me, the more spiritual energy flow increased within me. It was as though by aligning myself with life's outer flow, the beautiful inward flow of energy was naturally strengthened. By now, I had become thoroughly convinced that the constant act of letting go of one's self-centered thoughts and emotions was all that was needed for profound personal, professional, and spiritual growth.